So we're going to talk about some of the core beliefs we have as a church, what it means for us here at Legacy, how it informs how we're structured. We're going to talk about what it means for you personally and what it means for the city. So last week we spoke on creation. We spoke on Godhead. We covered a little too much ground last week in my opinion. This week is a little bit more simple. We're going to cover God's revelation primarily through his Bible, which when I was a young man I struggled with. It was an intense struggle with me trying to figure out how the Bible worked and how I could trust it. Um, So at the very end, we're going to have some Q&A, but probably only about 10 or 12 minutes of that, if even that. Um, So if you have questions come up in the process of me speaking or teaching or going through the scriptures, if you have any question or anything like that at all, just text it to this number that you see on the screen. Um, From most all of you, it will be scrambled. I won't even know who you are. It doesn't expose you or anything like that. So feel free with your questions and we will um, actually answer them real time. Also, just with that being said, I can't hit everything re- you know, regarding God's revelation through the Bible. I-, I just can't do it all. There's too much. But like I said last week, I'm going to try to hit the main points. I'm going to try to hit the things that are very important to us. So I'm going to move this thing. There's a fan that is <laughs> determined to mess my morning up. It's not going to do it, though. I'm going to win. All right. Let's think this is good here. Um, This is what we have on our website. As I jump in, it says this, and and you could look at it. This is part of our core doctrine and beliefs. You want to put this up there, Matt? All right. It says this. We see the Bible very simply as God's legacy to us. It is his story complete with a noble beginning, a tragedy, a selfless hero, a climactic rescue, In an amazing ending, we see God's word to us as totally infallible and alive for us to enjoy and follow with passion. It is the final authority on all things pertaining to life and faith and is inerrant in the original writings. Believe it or not, that is incredibly controversial today. Right? So, I mean, there's controversy coming from without... You see it on the news, you hear professors say it in the classroom, but you have to admit there's going to be some controversy from within too. You ask yourself questions, can I trust this? Is it truly inerrant? I mean, is it truly trustworthy? I'm going to go through that today. The first thing it starts off with is it says that we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. Now, I know biologically, inspiration means to breathe in and expiration means to breathe out. I get that. This is talking about the fact that the Bible is actually breathed into by God. It's actually endorsed. It's underwritten. God is saying, this is me. I'm giving this to you. It's inspired. This is what it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16. A lot of you know this scripture by heart. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now that says all scripture. That means the names that we can't pronounce and the books that we never read. It means the parts where it talks about how many candlesticks went back to the temple after whatever battle. I mean, all the little, all the the genealogy, someone was the daddy of someone else who was the daddy of someone else who was the daddy of someone else. That whenever we read the Bible, we usually just kind of skip by paragraphs to get to the stuff that really matters, right? Believe it or not, all of that really matters. All of it is useful. All of it. For teaching, for reproof. It says here, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this is what we believe. We believe that God authored the Bible, not man. God did not submit a draft for man to look at and kick around. 
He didn't suggest things to man. Uh, He didn't collaborate with man. He didn't kind of give them a vote on how it should go. God actually said, this is how it will be. But also, God did not just totally overcome man, possess him, you know, where his eyes roll to the back of his head, and he becomes a robot and just... I have to tell you, I actually was going to practice doing the robot in front of you guys for a, an illustration, but it got so bad, I thought, I can't do that. Um, <laughs> that didn't happen either. God did not remove man from the equation, but man is not the central part of the equation. Does that make sense to everybody? This is what it says in this book. I'm going to actually brought it up here to show you. If you guys are interested by doctrine, struggle with it, want to know more about it, this is a great book um, to get. It's called Doctrine. It's by uh, Driscoll and Brashears. Um, I know it's got the trippy picture of the snake on the front, um, but if you get past that, it's a really good book uh, as far as entry-level theology and doctrine and orthodox beliefs. It's been very helpful to me um, over the last, I don't know, year or so. So I just wanted to throw that out there and show the book to you guys. This is what it says in there. This is one of the things that they say. Can you put that quote up there? Driscoll and Brashears, they say, People who are providentially prepared by God and motivated and superintended by the Holy Spirit spoke and wrote according to their own personalities and circumstances in such a way that their words are the very word of God. God's supernatural guidance of the writers and their situations enabled them to receive and communicate all we'll get have us to know for His glory and for our salvation. This is what we call divine inspiration. Which means that the people weren't inspired, the process wasn't inspired, the words are inspired. That's basically what that means, okay? So, we also believe... That God's word is authoritative over all authorities. We get this from 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We're going to be throwing these up on the screen because I'm going to have to move a little bit fast. Do you have that one up there too? This is Paul. And we're going to pick it up right where that comma is. This is Paul talking to a church in Thessalonica. Okay? And he, he's so appreciative and he's thankful to God because they accepted his word. Not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The Word of God, which is at work in you believers. goes on to say this in 2 Peter 1.21. Do you have that you can throw up there? Okay, we can start there. It says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, God is the ultimate authority. Okay, we all agree on that. God is the ultimate authority. Therefore, His word to us is perfectly and ultimately authoritative. Think about that. If a king of a kingdom said, I want this done, I want this wall tore down, and I want the wall put up over there, six feet away. Well, that's going to be a lot of work. I don't care. I want it done. That's the way it is. Because he's king of that place, his decree is also ultimate. It's not substandard. It is pinnacle. Even his decrees. Sometimes when I'm working in my, in my home office, I can hear my kids fighting upstairs or down the hall. And they'll start disagreeing, and then what do they do? They invoke, Dad said. Yeah, but Dad said, Dad said that you were supposed to do this. I didn't hear him say that. 
No, he did. We're going to go tell. We're going to go tell him. I'm going to find out. Dad said I heard him say. What are they doing? They're invoking my name because of my authority. If I have authority, and I do because I'm a father, then my word has equal authority. Do you see how that works? God is our ultimate authority. That means his word is the most ultimate of authorities that we have. So what does that mean? Is that nothing judges scripture. I can't say this any more clear. Nothing judges scripture. But scripture judges everything. Scripture judges everything. And this is heightened in the fact that it is in the Bible that when we read, we see the picture, the gospel, the words, that actually bring us to a place where we are no longer spiritually dead, but spiritually alive. No other religious book can do this. It can't carry us to the cross. No other textbook, no other authority, no other codified set of beliefs can do this. The Bible is above all in standard and authority. The Bible is above all in its excellence, in its supremacy, in its preeminence. It is the ultimate of authorities in our life. Now, this is the controversy. This is why this is controversial. Yeah, but Luke, science and archaeology and technology, they've proven the Bible wrong. They've passed it up. We're a smarter people now. This is the controversy. Some see the Bible as an antiquated book of myths, especially when you hold it up against common knowledge today. You know, I had this uh, professor in school... Um, I think it was my freshman year. He was nationally known. He was a little bit of a, of a turkey. When it came to students that believe the Bible, um, if they were pre-med, he would not sign their documentation to get them into medical school unless they said that they would be evolutionists. If you were a God-believing Christian, he said, I won't sign it because I think it's ridiculous and I think you're ridiculous. So he got in a lot of hot water for that, right? CNN and the whole bit. That was my professor. So if you remember that 15 plus years ago, that was my guy. And I remember sitting in his office saying, Luke, it's ridiculous. I mean, just look, think about it. The Bible says that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. It says it all the time. It talks about there being four corners to the earth. Now, Luke, this was written back by men a long time ago before they had an understanding that the sun does not rise or set. That was back when men thought that the earth was the center of the universe. The sun doesn't rise. The sun doesn't set. The earth spins on its axis as it orbits the true center of our universe, which is the sun. Of course, now we know that because astronomy has passed God up, right? We no longer think that the earth is flat either because it's round, but it doesn't have four corners is what that means. So Luke, this is what I'm saying. If that book, if God got it wrong with astronomy and geography, then it has no authority over my life. You see his reasoning. That's his reasoning. If God messes it up there, I'm not going to let him speak to anything else. Now, this is obviously speaking in common language. When the Bible says, I'll just talk, this is a little bit of a sidebar. When the Bible says that the sun rises and the sun sets, that's actually a grace to you and me because that's how we talk. That's common language, right? The same professor could have easily said, man, my head is pounding because I didn't sleep at all last night. But we all know that to mean that he has a headache because he only slept maybe a couple hours. Or I'm starving to death. Well, you're not really starving to death, right? It's just common language. Well, that almost scared me to death. I almost got in a car accident. Scared me to death. Well, you're still breathing. 
You're still walking around. It didn't scare you to death either. But we would never look at him, this professor, or you or me, speaking in common language, and say, you know what? That's not biologically accurate as to what is going on in your head and as to what is going on in your stomach. So I'm going to cry foul. That's error. You're erroneous. And you're full of errors and contradictions within yourself. You know, So I can't trust anything you say because you said you're scared to death. We would never do that. Why? Because he's speaking in common language. That's God's grace to us. He speaks to us in the same way that we speak to each other. If anyone knows that the Son does not rise in the east and set in the west. I mean, we get that. God knows that. Why? Because he set the earth to spinning for its first time. With his own right hand, he took the earth and just set it spinning. He said, let there be a sun. I think he's got it figured out. He's got it figured out. Now, the Bible is not meant to be a textbook on astronomy, but it contains no errors. Contains no errors. And that leads me to the next one. We believe that the Bible has no errors in its original writings. Inerrancy says this, that God does not lie or speak falsely. He has no forked tongue. And because the scriptures are God's word, they are perfect. Perfect. And as a result, the entire Bible is without error. It is throughout the whole scripture that we see this just committed to and reinforced and affirmed. Second Samuel, I'm flying through these. Oh Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth. John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. On and on and on it goes. Jesus wasn't confused as to whether the word that he was using from the Old Testament and the word that he was speaking was perfect in every way. But here's the controversy once again. Yeah, Luke. But men wrote the Bible. It's full of errors. So many contradictions. I mean, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. First of all, I've got a bone to pick with that. Because anytime anyone says that, anytime you ever hear a person, maybe some of you have said this or you actually believe it, if you're in here and you think that the Bible is riddled with contradictions, you don't know that from finding it in the Bible, first of all. No one ever gets three months in, six months into writing the Bible. And just goes, oh my gosh, I can't get through this because I keep hitting these errors. There's contradictions. There's so many contradictions, I just can't even get through a whole month of this. I mean, it's just colliding into each other. I can't even agree with it. No one has ever done that. No one has ever done that. We get it off some dude we heard on a radio station or some hack on a blog or something like that. They don't want to yield to it and they don't want it to judge them. So they just say it's full of errors. It's full of contradictions. It sounds good to the average person. They pick it up because they put it down and they adopt it as their own. You've never met anyone that says that the Bible is full of contradictions that have actually even found any. Okay? Sorry. That was my sidebar. I'm done with that now. Um, but it's full of errors. So many problems with it. This is deal with that controversy. This is why they think that the Bible uses different mediums to communicate to us, different genres of literature. You have poetry, right? You have narrative, you have historical accounts, you have prophecy, you have letters, you have uh, eyewitness reports. You have all these different genres. We read them according to the author's intent. That's what makes it make sense. I don't read music lyrics as if they're law code. I don't read, you know, a shopping list as if it was a letter written from my wife to me. We read things differently, just like we listen to different people differently. Right? That's how the Bible was written to us. We see summaries, things that were summarized. 
We, sit, we do that all the time. How many people were there? I don't know, 20 or so? Well, 20 or so or 23? Okay, 23. We do that. What about summaries? Don't we give summaries as far as this is what happened and then someone else comes and adds their little bit in? Does it make your story false because they had different details than you? No. It actually builds complexity into it. That's one of the most beautiful parts about the Gospels. The fact that they don't all say the same thing. That actually gives verifiable credibility to them. is because they all have different details in it. This is what Brashear says. To interpret the Bible accurately... We must consider it carefully. Thus, interpret historical accounts like they are. Figures of speech, approximations, summaries, and such according to the author's intent. Taking care, lest our cultural and personal presuppositions distort our interpretation. Let me tell you, if you do not honor the, the author's intent and the genre, the style of literature it's written in, if you don't honor that, you will find some really weird stuff in the Bible. I promise you that. Read the Psalms and try to paint a picture of who God is in the Psalms. You end up with some wacky stuff. But it's speaking poetically, so we honor that. If I was to follow you around and start critically looking at what you say and what you write, the same way that some Bible critics do the Bible, we also would be saying weird things all the time, would we not? There are no errors in the Bible. There are no problems in the Bible. Jesus was not insecure about that. I will tell you, once again, as a sidebar, people who are credi- or just people who are critical of the Bible being inspired by God, people who are aggressive against the idea that God actually breathed into and created something very beautiful for us to enjoy and be equipped by today, people that are in that camp, they don't typically make the best exegetes and Bible interpreters. Typically. Because they're not honoring the way it was written. So, moving on. I spent too much time on that. But, Luke, what if, another controversy, what if you're right? And what if there are no errors, no contradictions in the Bible? I mean, so many translations have been made today that if there ever was pure truth, it's been jacked up and messed up ever since then by mankind. We've polluted it. Luke, it was pure one time. Pure as the country stream, and because man kept sticking his foot in it, by the time it gets to us, it just stinks, and it doesn't work well, and it's contradictory. That's not true. Let me just tell you something. The Bible version that you have, I don't even know what it is. Here, I'm holding an ESV right now. This was not translated from another translation. That's not how it works. Some people think that the King James is like the headspring of all translations or something. It is not. The King James Version is not the first Bible ever written. Okay, So this didn't come from something that came from something that came from something that came from the King James Version. That is not how your translation came about. Okay, So just rest assured. Because what happens is, is we think that way. And How many of y'all are old enough in here? I'm raising my hand first too, by the way. That you remember mimeograph machines? Yeah? Raise your hand. You know what a mimeograph machine is. So it's kind of like an old school Xerox machine. And if you put a copy in there and made a copy, and then stuck that copy in there and made a copy, you keep doing that, over time it's going to accumulate some trash, isn't it? Raise your hand if you remember cassette tapes. Come on. Don't be so scared. Well, when you could record something onto a blank cassette tape, and then take that one over and record off of it, and then record another one off of that recording, eventually it sounds like total garbage, right? 
That is not how your Bible came about. It's not. We have a beautiful set, a beautiful set of manuscripts that have been building over history. We would never look at a work of Sophocles or Plato or Caesar Augustus and say, well, I can't trust that that's what it really said. You know, with those, there's about 10 copies existing for those works. There's 14,000 of the New Testament. And there's a 1% variation with the, among all of those 14,000 copies. And the 1% variation is in words like spelling. Like how British people and Americans spell the word honor or color. It has nothing to do with theology. They're not mistakes. They're not contradictions and they're not errors. Does that make sense? I really wanted to push that cow over because I'm so sick of that. I run into people all the time like, were y'all a, K, a KJV church only? Do y'all just do the King James? No. No, we don't. You could bring whatever version in you want. That's fine. You know? Um, but no, we're not about that. Now, we believe also that the Word of God is active and effective and is not dead, it is not irrelevant. If you're into memorizing passages of Scripture, you should memorize this one in Hebrews 4. Can you put that one up, 412? It says this, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen, we have issues today that did not exist back when the Bible was written. We have oil spills. We have Republicans. We have Democrats. We have the organic health movement. We have hockey, right? We have got copyright infringement. We've got all kinds of things that exist today that did not exist then. So here's the controversy. Luke, we're more advanced as a society today. We're more advanced. Socially, we've evolved beyond what the Bible can address. Because all this does is address antiquated things. Like your ox fell in a hole. What do you do? Well, we don't have oxen now, right? So Luke, we've outgrown that socially. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. Because when it's all said and done, and you change the clothes, and you change the toys, and you change the way the music sounds... Theft is still theft, is it not? Whether you're sticking something in your pocket, you're clicking something with a mouse. Lust is still lust. Whether you're going to a temple or you're clicking your mouse, right? Addiction is still addiction. Pain is still pain. Pride is still pride. And as long as the Bible is discerning between thoughts and intentions of the heart, it will always be relevant. Always be relevant. It's living. It's, it's an animated word in our lives. Now, besides that, well, no, I'll just move on. I keep finding these rabbit trails. I'm trying to do really good about not, not running off of it. It's also effective for our salvation. You know, we're adopted into God's, families, or God's family as a Christian because of the message and the word and the beautiful story given to us in the scriptures. It accomplishes its work. It does its job. It will either make a heart softer or a heart harder. Watch how the Bible does that. Whenever you preach the gospel to somebody, it's never neutral. You never just speak the gospel and it just doesn't do anything. It's not a neutral word. It's effective. It's either going to soften someone's disposition towards God and Christ and His work for us, or it's going to harden their disposition and their posture between them and God and what Christ has done for them, right? It will always do that. Here's proof. Isaiah 55. It says this, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose 
and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So moving on real quickly. We believe that the Bible is complete. It is not open for addition. It is not open for subtraction. Deuteronomy 4.2. Can you throw that up there real fast? You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. It says it a little bit later on in that same book. It says it a little bit later on in Proverbs. It says it a little bit later on in Revelation. You see, when God breathed and superintended man's hand to inspire this beautiful word that gives the story of Jesus Christ, his work for us, whenever he did that, he felt like and he feels like that everything that is in there is complete and adequate in everything that we need. There's nothing that we need that is not in there. I know that's how we feel sometimes though, don't we? I mean, there are some, I'm telling you truthfully, there are some passages in the Bible, I wish there would be an extra paragraph to just kind of unpack that. I know what the commentaries say. I'd rather hear what you have to say about it, God. What did you mean when you said this? Seriously. And then for some of us, there's some parts of the Bible we wished it didn't talk about so much. Right? But it's very complete. It's very clear. It's perfectly proportioned masterfully proportioned in exactly the way that God wants it. I'm going to touch on this again here in just a minute. Because where do these beliefs, where do they show themselves here at Legacy? The fact that we believe that the Bible is inerrant, infallible, complete, beautiful, animated, the fact, what does that mean for us here as a culture? If you hear anything this morning, I want you to hear this. This will be the most important thing I say today. And for those of you that are in our missional community, I'm sorry, because this is a drum that we've been beating every week. And you're probably like, gosh, is this all he ever talks about? Yeah, a lot of time it is. We believe that the Bible is about Jesus Christ. Okay? Let me tell you what that means. We believe that the Bible is laid out, that the Old Testament points to and leans towards a pivotal event with a pivotal character. And everything from that is a reflection and an echo of what God has done in that pivotal moment with that pivotal character, being Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. It's about that before it's about anything else. Anything else. There's this beautiful story in Luke 24 where these two disciples, they're walking um, from one city to the next. It's a long walk. Jesus joins them, but they don't know it's him. He's totally disguised, and however he wanted to do that, he's disguised. They don't get it, okay? So he's talking, and they're very bummed out. Because Jesus was just put up on a cross and then stuck in a tomb. And they're like, what happened to all these promises? I totally don't get this. What's going on? Jesus, this this is what he says. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them everything in the scripture that concerned himself. Everything. Starting from the very beginning, from Genesis. Gentlemen, didn't you know? Look at Genesis. This was talking about Jesus Christ. This is talking about me. Look at Deuteronomy. This was talking about me. Look last week. This was pointing to me. He did this, and this was their response in verse 32 of Luke 24. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scripture. You see, if we handle the Bible as if it's a book about us, primarily, then we just try to mine things out of it to make us better performers, to make us more comfortable, to make us smarter, to make us not feel as guilty at night when we go to bed. But we actually 
believe differently here as a church. We don't believe that the Bible is a a series of disjointed little mini-stories that talk about what we need to do to imitate a character in the story. That's what we call moralism. Nothing wrong with morals, but anytime typically when you put an ISM after a world, it kind of messes up the word. Moralism is the idea that we could read a Bible story and try to imitate the character and that being the end game. David and Goliath, the end game for that is not to be more courageous and be like David. Not the end game for that scripture. It's not even what it's teaching us. It's not even why it's in the Bible. But we do that with a lot of stories. We chop them up and disassociate them from the cross. We disassociate them from the passion of Jesus Christ. And we try to dig out these little lessons. We don't believe that here. Because moralistic stories, little lessons, they don't change your behavior. Jesus Christ changes your behavior. So, what does this mean? It means that everything we do here is built on this premise, whether it's from this pulpit, whether it's in our missional communities, whether it's in how we do our outreach, whether it's in how we handle our kids, you name it. Everything we do regarding the Word of God and how we read it is built off the premise that everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation end is pointed towards the work, the very adequate and perfect work for you by Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. There's a congruent message. It's the same message from the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's this. A king is coming, a king has come, and a king is coming again. Everything revolves around that. The Old Testament, the New Testament, it's not bad cop, good cop. Which is what we think. We think the Old Testament is this big grumpy God that can't wait to dump truck his wrath on anything that's moving around with a heartbeat, right? And we just can't wait to get to the New Testament because that's where Christ is. And he's full of grace and flowers and chocolates and beautiful music. And man, if we could, if we could just get those two dudes to meet, you know, then we'd have a perfect word. We treat it like that. Now, these books, new in the Old Testament, they honor each other. And they honor God because they tell the same story. They tell the same story. Jesus, he ripped the Pharisees and he said this, You guys, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you'll have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So, one way we honor this as a church is we acknowledge the different ways in which Jesus Christ is pointed to in the Old and in the New Testament. Okay, now this might be from a vision, it might be a, I don't know, a promise, an appearance, a foreshadowing, a type, an echo, an arrow, whatever. There's several different ways that God has done this for us. Think of a great movie. We talk about this, like I said, in the missional community, forgive me. Think of a great movie where you've got a great director, right? And he finds some moment in the film with some character, and it's this big, powerful moment. And it's this, just, it, it's actually the, the heartbeat of the story. So everything up until that moment, they're foreshadowing. They're jumping forward to point, to nuance that this is going to happen. And then everything after that is a flashback as to what happened in that moment. That's a little bit of what we're talking about. I'll show you. Jesus. Jesus was foreshadowed when God sacrificed an animal in the Garden of Eden to, co- to cover the shame of mankind, right? Because later, Jesus would come and be sacrificed himself for all of mankind in order to bring us back into an ultimate garden. You see why that's in there now? Jesus was foreshadowed when a whole nation would sacrifice these spotless lambs and then take the blood and put it all over a doorpost so that the angel of death wouldn't come. I mean, what is that about? 
I mean, what are you supposed to get out of that? What lesson? Someone help me with the lesson on that. Why is that even in the Bible? Because later on, our spotless lamb would come, whose blood wouldn't be put on our doorstep, but on the doorstep of our, or the doorframe of our, our hearts, so that the angel of death would too pass by us. That's why that's in there. Jesus was foreshadowed when Isaac carried wood up a hill so that his dad would sacrifice him, even though God already had a sacrifice already waiting. Why is that in there? Because Jesus later on would also carry wood of a cross up another hill because he is God's provided sacrifice for us. See why that's in there. Jesus was foreshadowed by the whole system of priests Because these priests, they would intercede and mediate for the people's forgiveness. Jesus is our ultimate, our highest, and our last priest who would also mediate for us and for mankind's forgiveness. Jesus was foreshadowed by the whole temple system because later he would demonstrate that God doesn't dwell in a building, he dwells in a man. That man is me. This is a favorite one of mine. Jesus was demonstrated in the person of Barabbas. Barabbas, the man that Pilate let out of jail instead of Jesus. The murderer, the criminal. Why is that in there? Have you ever read the accounts and thought, why is this detail in there? Why did they tell me that Barabbas was let out of jail instead of Jesus? Why is that even in there? Because you are Barabbas. Because I am Barabbas. And we were let out of jail. And Jesus too paid our price, even though we're murderers and thieves that didn't deserve what we got. Jesus was foreshadowed in the life of Abel, who was murdered by even his own brother, and whose blood cries out to condemn Ken, Cain. But later on, Jesus, who was also murdered by his mankind, would have blood spill on the ground, rise up and not condemn us, but cover us for our own salvation, right? Abraham, Jesus was foreshadowed in the life of Abraham. Because Abraham left a very comfortable place where he shared a lot of glory. Going into a messy, aggressive people. Aggressive against him, even trying to steal his bride. Later, Jesus would come, leaving a place of glory in a very comfortable place, into a messy situation where people were aggressive with him, still trying to steal his bride. Jesus was foreshadowed by Jacob as Jacob wrestled with God, having his hip injured, only to leave the whole thing with a blessing. Later on, Jesus would come and wrestle with God on a cross. He also would be injured, but he would come out of a grave with a blessing. Joseph. Jesus was nuanced in the life of Joseph, wasn't he? Here it is, Joseph, wronged by his own kind, to later extend his hand of love and rescue when all the people around him were desperately in ruin. Jesus, too, later on, surrounded by people in total ruin and desperation, would lend out his hand of rescue, even though we're the ones that put him on the cross. Job. Job was shown in the life of Jesus. I mean, Job, he innocently suffered under God, right? Even though he was tempted away from that. But he did that suffering well in order to draw glory to God. Jesus too, even more innocent than Job, would undergo a suffering very deep. But he would do it without succeeding or without giving his life into temptation because he too wanted to draw glory to God. Jesus is displayed in the life of David. As David killed a giant, as a whole nation watched on in total disbelief and panic. Jesus later on would come and slay a bigger giant of sin, a bigger giant of death, while the whole people watched on in disbelief and in panic. Jonah. Jesus is nuanced in the life of Jonah. As Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale, only to emerge and save an aggressive city. But later on, Jesus would be not in the belly of a whale, but in the belly of the earth, to emerge three days later and save an aggressive people. 
Nehemiah. Jesus is nuanced in the life of Nehemiah. As Nehemiah would go and try to build a broken down city of people that would glorify God. Jesus too is going to come into a broken people and build something that would glorify God. Samson, this is one of my favorites. Samson is a contrast. Samson, who killed more in his death than he did in his life, as his arms were stretched out and his enemies mocked him. Jesus Christ would save more in his death than he did in his life, as his arms were stretched out and his enemies mocked him. Adam. Jesus is the ultimate Adam. He's the ultimate Adam who did not fail in the garden, but he succeeded giving you a righteousness you didn't deserve while taking a righteousness he didn't deserve. Why? So that we could re-enter the garden where the real tree of life is. And he goes on, and he goes on, and he goes on and on. I just picked the most obvious ones. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. Let me tell you that the Bible is about Jesus Christ. These stories don't make sense if it's not about Jesus Christ. What am I supposed to get out of Samson? I mean, don't cut your hair, marry a good woman. Yeah, be nice to your parents. I mean, we just come up with weird things, don't we? Noah, what did Noah do? He did, I mean, he, he operated in the grace that God gave him, or else he'd be like the whole generation that only had evil thoughts continually all the time. Is this how you read the Bible? This is how we read the Bible. We do and we will read the Bible this way. This is how we see Scripture. I don't want to be more like David. I don't want to be more like Jonah. I want to be more like Jesus Christ. Let the passages carry you there. So, real quickly, this is another, this is a little sub-passage. I mean, this is also how it informs us as a church, but I don't want to spend very much time on it. We will as a church, as we grow, as we expand, we'll have people that will come up to me or anyone on the front row and say, Hey Luke, I have a word for the, I have a word for the people. I have a word to give to Legacy Church. And what they're asking is, is I need the microphone so that I can tell them what God just told me. We get that. Listen, you have a church where you have three elders right now. The current elders were all what's called a continuationist. We're all continuationists or charismatic. Some of you would know that as charismatic, where we believe that the Holy Spirit is very beautiful and very alive today in how He works and operates, not only in the church, but in the culture as well. Okay? We believe that. We believe that God does speak to His people, affirms us, encourages us, leads us. We also believe that He doesn't contradict Himself. We believe that God, because He does not speak with a forked tongue, doesn't contradict Himself in His Word, He today does not contradict Himself. On top of that, we are in no need of new information. The Bible has given us everything we need for information, but, but Luke, I've got a dream. I've got an impression that I want to come up and say, well, we, you know what? We also, because we're charismatic or we're continuationists, however you want to say it, I don't mock or, criti- or be critical about a word that comes up, but I also don't gullibly just immediately receive it either. We test it. We test those things. Okay? First Thessalonians, this is what Paul says. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. John 4.1 Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay? So what kind of things do we look at? Well, first of all, does it agree with the Word of God? If it doesn't, no. If it doesn't, no, you're not saying anything to the church. Do you have a Christ-like lifestyle? 
Okay? Are you loyal to the Lord? Well, I'd have to know you for that. So if I don't know you, if the elders don't know you, if a good qualified leader can't vouch for your character and your personality, then no. No, I'm sorry. Now listen, I know this sounds like we're making the front door really small. It does. It looks like we're quenching the spirit. Okay, and I know what that looks like, and I know when people are going to come in, they're going to want more access, they're going to want everything to be a lot more visceral, they're going to want to sing a song in front of you, they're going to want to tell you a dream that they had, they're going to want to tell you an impression that they had, and I love those things, because I think God does do those things. But just as much as the Holy Spirit is into breathing into situations like this, He's also into order and protection. And I want to protect this flock as best as we can. The elders want to protect this as best we can. So we highly filter those things. Highly filter those things. Does that make sense? Listen, we'll have people leave the church because of this. We'll have people leave Legacy Church. A, because we might actually believe that there is something called prophecy. We'll have people leave this church. B, we'll have people leave this church because they want to come up and give a word. And I'm going to have to say, listen, man, you're a really cool dude. And I want to get to know you. There's no way you're touching that mic. (laughs) It's not happening. I don't even know your name. I mean, for all I know, you can get up there and just go nuts. And I'm not going to love you more than I love these people. It's not happening. Does this make sense? Text in questions if you have any. (laughs) Okay. But here's Paul talking about a church called Berea. Paul, he says, you know what? I go in and preach to these Bereans. And I preach to the word. But then they go home and they search their Bible. And they make sure that everything I'm saying is true. Here's Paul. You know? Who's going to throw a flag on Paul? Nobody. It's Paul. He's preaching, and yet these Bereans, they go home and they search their study NIV Bibles, right? And they go, is what Paul is saying true? Now, if they're willing, and they were called noble for doing that, by the way. If they're going to do that, I'm going to do that with anyone that walks in the door. If Paul had that happen to him, right? Does this make sense? Okay, moving on. I just wanted to make sure. So you, so what does this mean for you? Where is your, you personally, where is your Bible reading leading you? Where is it leading you? If it's not leading you to Christ, you're reading it wrong. You're reading it incorrectly. This is what C.S. Lewis says. This isn't going to be on the screen. It is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. We must not use the Bible as a sort of encyclopedia, out of which texts can be taken for use as weapons. Listen. If you're trying to use the Bible to crack some code, you're reading it wrong, okay? If you're using it to try to figure out how to be the most secure, the most successful, the most financially well-off, how to get a husband, how to get a wife, how to get a good GPA, if you're reading it that way, you're reading it wrong. Wrong. I'm sorry. Okay? It needs to lead you to Christ. Now, if... I always use The Karate Kid as my example in movies because it is probably one of the greatest movies ever made. Not the remake, that's cheesy. But the good one, the original one, if y'all were to all watch that and I were to come afterward and say, what would you, if you were to give me a quick summary in less than 20 seconds on what you thought that movie was about, if all you did was start talking about the cars that he waxed, well, there was a blue one. Hey, there was a yellow one too. I personally liked the uh, convertible more, but he worked really hard on it. If you did that and you thought that was the summary of the story, I would say that you have missed it. But we read the word that way. We can very quickly read the word that way. Try to extract the wrong mineral from the soil. It's not about you. 
Primarily, it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. You need to let your reading carry you there. You need to reorient your life and allow it to carry you to the cross. Many people, when they read the Bible without Jesus at the center, this is how they come away from the Bible. Confused, bored, scattered, discouraged. Right? Because what's the point? Because you, 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 know, you wake up at 5 in the morning because you're determined to do it right this year. Right? And you read Samson. Or Jonah. Crying out loud. Jonah. I mean... See, you're going, okay, what does this mean for my everyday? How does Jonah change the way that I parent my kids? How does Samson change the way I am in the cubicle today? My cl- I mean, how does it work? It won't work very well. You will get some good lessons. You will get some teaching. But you need to put yourself in that story and say, where's Christ in this story? changes the whole text. It changes the whole text. Okay? You need to reorient your heart and mind as you read the Word. Also, personally for you, are you letting the Bible, are you letting the Word of God discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart? Are you letting it judge you where no one can see you? These are hard questions. You need to lean into an infallible Word. Yield to it and let it handle you. Let it look deep inside of you. Let it judge things. Let it cast a vote. See what it says about you. You know, you are Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. In the Gospels, I am the Pharisee. Okay? So are you. We are the evil brothers. I am the hopeless nation. I mean, I am the ugly sister, Leah. Right? We are it. That is us. That's why it's there. I am the... Take that for example. Leah, the ugly sister. I, I hate to use the word ugly. The Bible said it, not me. I'm the ugly sister. Okay? But I was pursued. Even though I was not pleasurable and had nothing to offer in return, I was pursued. Right? Where are you at in this? Are you letting God expose your inadequacies? Are you letting that happen? And once they're exposed, are you letting Christ be the one to rescue you out of those inadequacies? Or are you letting your performance rescue out of those inadequacies? See, we need a drastic and radical reorientation of our heart and how we engage the Word of God. Okay? Now, the culture. I'm finishing now. The culture. What does this mean for Knoxville? This doctrine of God's revelation and then the infallibility of it. What does it mean for the city that we're in right now? I'll tell you this. It judges us, the Bible, it judges us in in an age where we just really don't like to be judged. It's not fun to be judged. It defines what sin is. And what sin isn't, and our culture really hates that. It squirms underneath of it. You know, I posted this video um, this week on our Facebook accounts of Mark and Grace Driscoll, um, who are the leaders of Acts 29, who we love as a church, and they go on the view. Right? They go on the view to sit there and talk about this new book, this highly controversial book. Okay, and it didn't take long before the. It didn't take long before he started saying what was sin and what wasn't and start putting standards out there. And people started feeling... You could see the hosts. You could see them squirm. They could not get further away and not fall off the bench. They were just squirming. That's the way we are. Our culture doesn't like the fact that there are absolutes, there are judgments, they say what is up, and they say what is down. Our culture doesn't like that. Now, the doctrine of an authoritative Bible is important for Knoxville because the author of our word 
He honors the standards that we are all destined to fail by. Now hear that. He put these standards, this rich standard above us that we're destined to fall. Destined to fail. And he says, this is it. Can you be here? Can you be here? Can you be perfect? This is it. I mean, you can come to heaven if you're perfect, right? Understand that. You can make it to heaven. You don't even need Jesus, but you have to be perfect in order to do that. Right? No sin. But no one in here is like that. No one ever has been created that has been like that. So we all need somebody. That's the whole point of an authoritative Bible that points out and judges our sin. It's good. It's good for the culture. As you bump into them in the restaurants, as you bump into them in the gym, it's good that the Bible paints this horrible landscape of dark, deep depravity that cannot be escaped. That the question will be begged, I can't live up to this standard. What am I supposed to do? How do I get in? I mean, who can be perfect? That's the point. You can't be. You need a hero. You need a rescuer. That's the point. You see, it tells a story about a hero that we desperately need. And then it does this radical thing of introducing us to this hero. It's radical. It's radical when you think about it. Our city, even you, needs a hero. Your, your, your workplace needs a hero. Your marriage desperately needs a hero. Your family, your kids, you need a hero. Now, we're always trying to secure our own heroes. We're always trying to secure while ignoring the one that is already secured for us. We're always trying to draw an image while an image has already been drawn for us. We're always trying to do things instead of allowing a hero to come in and radically rescue us out of the problem that we're in. Knoxville needs this. Listen, they don't need a Bible that just says it's okay to do what they're doing because we're all about tolerance. They need a Bible with heavy, 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 heavy judgment. Why, Luke? That sounds weird. Why heavy judgment? The heavier the judgment, the more beautiful the grace. There's no sin that you've ever done or your neighbor that grace cannot outrun an eclipse. They need to know that. Little sin, little Jesus. That's how it works. Big sin, big Jesus, big grace. That's how it works. It's important for our city to know that. Okay?